Good morning. Thank you for coming. I'm really excited to be here and to speak to you about the difference between audio and radio. I, uh, I'll just take 10 seconds to tell you a bit about myself. Okay, maybe 20 seconds. I live in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, where I've uh, lived and worked in radio and audio for the past 10 years. I've made a bunch of radio so, documentaries. Uh, you brought with some pins and uh, whoops. <laughs> Trigger finger. Itchy trigger figure. Um, made a bunch of radio documentaries over the years. Um, they've won a bunch of awards, including one at the Third Coast in 2005. And lately, I've become a broadcaster. Big left turn in my career, uh, where I've started to host live radio shows and taped radio shows. And that's what's gotten me thinking about the difference between audio and radio, which are two different media. So, um, we, I, I'm going to play you a lot of stuff over the next hour and 15 minutes, so hopefully this will be a treat for your ears. And before we get started, I'd just like to have a show of hands in the room. How many people here consider themselves to be radio producers? All right. And how many consider themselves to be audio producers? Good. Very good. So we have about an even split. This is fascinating. Excellent. Okay. So... We've all read a lot about and heard a lot about in the past five, ten years, the, the much-ballyhooed death of traditional media, whether it's radio, television, or newspapers. Who needs those anymore, right? Well, I beg to differ. I think radio is undergoing a renaissance, and I think that that renaissance stems from the fact that there's been a kind of a chemical reaction in radio. There's been a fission. If radio was an atom, it is now split into two separate atoms. One is still called radio, and the other one is called audio. They're two different media. As I said, part of the reason I've been thinking about this a lot is because now I've uh, lately started to host a, a fill-in host for a 6 to 9 a.m. weekend show that's heard across my, across my home province of British Columbia, 6 to 9 a.m. Saturdays and Sunday mornings on CBC Radio 1. And I go in there, uh, I've got some taped interviews, I've got some tracks, music that I'm going to play, and sometimes I do a live interview and I have to chit-chat with the newsreader and give a weather update. And it's just me, just the on-air mic in the studio and my clips. And there's nothing more exhilarating than being there and sort of steering the mothership. And, it's, and as I started to do that, I started to realize that I couldn't rely on my audio tools that I'd spent years becoming passionate about and developing, that I was using different tools, different approach to make radio than I had been making audio. And I think both are equally valid media. They both have a lot of exciting things to offer. So by no means am I, uh, is my intention here to uh, put down either radio or audio. It's to differentiate between them. What's the difference? Well, chemistry actually offers a, a perfect analogy for this. If you look at the periodic table of the elements, um, what's the symbol for gold? AU. So audio actually is kind of like gold. It's raw. It's taken raw. It's collected raw. And then it's worked through craftsmanship to make it beautiful carefully molded. You know, gold is worked out by goldsmiths, audio is worked on by audiosmiths, and it's shone and burnished, and then it becomes a permanent thing that you can look at again and again, or listen to again and again. And if you look at the periodic table of the elements, radium, symbol RA, is an interesting element, because it's a lot like radio. It's, it doesn't exist in nature for very long. It's radioactive, active being the key word. It immediately decays 
um, and when it does exist. And that's what makes it so vital. That's what makes it itself. It's ephemeral. It happens, and then it's gone forever. So I've made a little bit of a visual display of this. Audio on the left, radio on the right. What I want you to imagine is that uh, there's a, we usually use faders that go up and down, but music DJs use crossfaders that go left to right. And I want you to imagine that there's a set of crossfaders in between each of these parameters. Packaged versus performed, malleable versus active, fixed versus ephemeral. And I think that much of what we do as audio producers and radio producers has to satisfy sometimes both people who listen to audio and people who listen to radio, which are two different ways of listening. And so sometimes we have to slide these parameters and adjust them. Well, every time we have to adjust them according to the piece that we're making. And that's what I'm going to talk about as I play you these examples over the next hour. So first up, one of my favorite all-time pieces. And this one treads the line between radio and audio remarkably well. As you listen, imagine hearing this live on the radio and you'll find that it works if you can imagine just having heard this in your kitchen or in your car. And as you listen, imagine hearing it on your headphones for the fifth time, if you can imagine that. You may have heard this before. And take it from me, it works. It's as though they managed to find the pocket of the crossfaders right in the middle for all of those parameters. This is Jonathan Goldstein from his show Wiretap on CBC Radio 1. So uh, you've, you've brought with some pins to the studio? These I actually got in New York, wonderful, kind of shiny blue pins. And one of the greatest things about juggling is that it's, it's meditative. So maybe if you could just close your eyes. Uh-huh. That's nice. Isn't that nice? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I can't close my eyes. And this is about where I put some music on. Right. You know, it, it creates a little bit of tension. It creates tension. And it's exciting. Uh, maybe like behind the glass there, could you put some music on? Just so we can all get in the mood. Great. Yeah, that's, that's nice. And I'd maybe do a little, kind of a couple of Vegas, like, ha, ha, hop, hop, ho, hop, hey, hop, hop. Just under, over the music. So, right, so the, the hops are also very important, and that, and well, that yeah. can be totally appreciated S over the signaling radio. Signaling the audience to beginning the trip. Right. Hop. Right. Nice, yeah. Thank you. You know, as that, as you get into that, it's just natural that you fall into the patter. Patter is, is really the big part of, of being a live juggler. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, my parents still think I'm a lawyer. At the end of the show, I'll be passing my hat around. Um, please give money to put my parents through college. <laughs> so let's say the audience is laughing now. Uh -huh. They probably are. And then I'll just go, double spins, double spins, double spins. That is nice. I Okay. Yeah, I mean, you, so you, you'd like to teach me how to do this? I would. What, what I'd like to do is just start you off nice and easy, uh -huh. you know. Um, actually, just, uh, even just the liberty of bringing some tennis balls down. What we're going to do is, is you're going to take um, one ball in either hand and just uh -huh. sort of at a slow, like a walking pace, uh -huh. just alternate hands. There you, yeah, that's great. So now this is going to be the one-two catch-catch. So that goes one, two, catch, catch. See this, this, yeah, this is not so easy. Okay, now we're going to advance on to the next step. 
You just cross them one at a time. Oh. Sort of like that. That's it. Over and... Oh, oh. okay. Uh, yeah. I, um, um, all right, well, I'll pick them up. Okay. And, uh, and this is actually a great opportunity to use a drop line. Oh, yeah? What's a drop line? Well, it sort of lets the audience see, you know, that you're fallible and that you have a sense of humor about it. They almost even think it's built in. Oh, I see. When, in fact, it's a mistake like the one you just made. That, yeah, it shows so, my humanity. In a way. Yeah. Yeah. Chris oh, uh, and, I'll, and, and, I'll and Cross. Uh, yeah. Right. Well, um, that's a drop. Drops happen. We forgive ourselves. Yeah, I'll you want to get those for me? Yeah. Okay. I got it right over here. All right. Um, I don't know if this is for me. You know, I'm not, I don't have the best hand-eye coordination. Oh, you're uh, doing great. Uh, juggling, juggling this. You know what I'm thinking? Can you pass me those pins for a second? Sure. I mean, the truth is, maybe all I really need is that, you know, the hop-hop sounds and the uh, the patter. I could probably do really good patter. And I could just do the, um, you know, I could just be like, make the make the sound, right? Yeah, with the you're pin, just smacking like the club into your hand. I can yeah, but see it sounds like, but I know, but on the radio, it sounds like I'm juggling. Well, yes, but right? he's it not sounds, juggling. No, but I mean, it sounds just like, like yeah. what you're doing, right? Well, on the radio, I, I'm a great juggler. Will you allow me that? But you're cheating yourself. No, I'm not. Okay, but another thing that you haven't thought of, mm -hmm. I have to say, I'm sorry, uh, yeah. is that when you're doing this fake drumming, um, is it... My juggling? There's no... Radio juggling? There's no chance that you can drop. Oh, no? Okay, so that kind of ruins the... Whoops! Oh, look at that. Uh, you see, I'm fallible, folks. I'm, 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 I'm one of you guys. I, I, I suck at things. But that's, I'm inadequate. That's so insincere. I love that piece. It's one of my favorites. And I love how the juggler is so outraged. It's so insincere. He's outraged that someone would try and fake it. And the fact is, both radio and audio are insincere. And it's faking it all the time. It's just a different kind of faking it. For audio, you're faking it uh, by working hard on your edit. For radio, you're faking it by performing. It's a performance. And uh, I'll talk more about that in a bit. But, but one of the things I love about this piece is that it does kind of sit in the pocket between audio and radio. How was this produced? It sounds so spontaneous. There's that line uh, behind the glass there. So like that Im immediately gives you a mental image of these two guys. Maybe they're sitting at a table with a carpet on it, you know, like for the, in, a, in you know, the studio with all these... Uh, carpeted walls, and, and they're sitting there, and he gets up to juggle, and they're talking, and it's just spontaneous. It sounds like your mental image is that these guys are in a studio. But was it created that way? I don't know. It sounds like also it could have been painstakingly produced. Only Jonathan and his team know how it was put together, because it is so good. Um, interesting note, this is, uh, this is a few years old, and I think it was... It, it, at a time when the audience that we were producing for was still primarily a radio audience. So these cats put this together knowing this was gonna be on the radio for an audience that was listening on the radio, not necessarily listening on their headphones at a time of their own choosing. What's amazing about it is that it also works on your headphones at a time of your own choosing, and it stays funny no matter how many times you've heard it. So the point is that it's only really in the past 10 years that audio has become something different from radio. Uh, when it's, it's actually mind-blowing to me to think that 
a very short time ago, a very short time ago, the idea of listening to a radio program twice was completely illogical. When would that ever happen? Unless you were a real fan of uh, radio documentaries and you wrote a letter and you mailed it in to your station and asked for a, maybe a transcript and maybe a tape recording of that documentary. So this is a really new idea. It's shocking because we all take it for granted now, I think, but it's still really new. So because of this, I'm, con I'm convinced that you can approach a radio show and an audio show the same way. You have to know what you're making and, and make some choices based on these parameters. So both radio and audio are forms of storytelling. I think we'll agree. Um, and there's a convention when it comes to telling stories, even if you're just telling a story uh, around the campfire, let's say. You tell people what they're going to hear. You tell the story. And then you tell them what they've heard. And this is often very true of a radio show. You think about the bills at the top of a radio show, the top of the hour. Someone will come in and tell you what's coming on. This is a radio convention. Audio is and should be different. So, so strangely enough, um, I've got an example from a movie that illustrates this very well. And it happens to be a movie that's actually set right here in Chicago, sort of. When I was your age, television was called books. And this is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. Is there any sports in it? Are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. Doesn't sound too bad. I'll try and stay awake. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's very nice of you. Your vote of confidence is overwhelming. All right. The Prince's Bride. By S. Morgenstern, Chapter One. Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florida. So that's from The Princess Bride. And it is one of my favorite scenes I've ever seen in a movie, ever. I mean, this is a movie that has it all. It has rodents of unusual size. It has a beautiful princess. It has a swashbuckling hero. It has sword fights. It has Andre the Giant. It has the Sicilian. It has torture. It has the pit of despair. It has miracles. It's a great fairy tale. And yet, even though it has all of those things, the directors chose to put this scene at the beginning. Why did they choose to do this? Why did they choose to put this scene that sort of tells you what's coming up? Because it puts you in the right frame of mind to see that movie. Fantasy stories aren't for everyone, but everyone was read to as a child, or everyone encountered a fairy tale of some form as a child. You see that sick little boy in his room with the Chicago Cubs banner on the wall. That's how I know it's in Chicago. And you see his grandfather come in, and it puts you in that frame of mind. It reminds you what it was like when you were a kid and you were feeling sick and someone came in and read to you. And suddenly, you're much more willing to be drawn into that story of fairy tales and rodents of unusual size than maybe you were before, especially if you're a skeptical kind of person. So that's a major difference for me between audio and radio, is that radio tells you what's coming up. Audio draws you in and puts you in the right frame of mind. It prepares you for what's coming. Radio gives you headlines and audio tells a story. That's not to say that radio is bad and that giving headlines is bad. It works. 
here is an example of how it tends to happen on the radio, and this is the top of a half-hour show that I uh, guest-hosted um, last year. It's the Vancouver Drive Home show on CBC Radio 1. It has traffic updates, it has news, it has current affairs interviews uh, based on the news of the day. It's your typical current affairs radio show, and this is what the top of a half-hour sounds like. <laughs> Hello there, my name is Paolo Pietro Paolo. Welcome back to On the Coast on CBC Radio 1. Now this is a story that will make you want to yank out your computer and hurl it into a dark, fathomless abyss. A Langley family has been the victim of computer hacking for a year and a half, and this week things really got out of hand. I'll speak with the mother coming up in just a few minutes on the coast. Also this hour, the crisis in East Africa has been the focus of headlines for a couple of weeks now, but it is not a new problem. People have been facing it for years. We'll take a look at the role politics have played in this part of the world for the past couple of decades. And are there any words left that are still taboo? That's all coming up this hour on the coast. Stay with us. Right now, Yvonne Emore joins us with some CBC local news headlines. We have a few more details about the death of a seven-year-old on Vancouver Island. The Campbell River boy died overnight and his father is in custody. And a stiff sentence has been imposed in a record drug bust. Two men, one from Port Hardy, were nabbed trying to sail 1,000 kilos of cocaine to B.C. Those stories coming up on B.C. Today at 5.30. Thank you, Yvonne. And here again is Jenna Chow to help get you home. There's a closure in Abbotsford because of a very serious accident. It's at Clearbrook and Marshall. Also an accident, a cyclist has been... That traffic report continues for two minutes. When would you ever want to hear that again? <laughs> Never. Never, ever, ever, ever would you want to hear that again. But in the moment, it actually works. And the reason it works is because you feel like you're plugged into what's happening right now. And you feel like you're listening to it with everybody else who's listening to it right now, getting vital information that is happening only right now. I mean, when in normal life would you talk about uh, a, a family that's been victim of hackers and then switch gears to talk about this political situation and famine in East Africa and then why are words taboo? What the hell does that mean? And then you hear about the death of a seven-year-old child and you spend about three seconds on that. How, how awful is that? But that's what works on radio. And then the traffic, which goes on for two minutes, but it's actually vital information for some people. Somehow it works. It makes an audio producer want to scream and it's nothing you'd ever want to listen to again, as I say. But as a radio show, that's what makes it vital, the fact that it's, 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 it's active, it's moving, it's right now, it happens and it's over. And it, it doesn't matter what just happened. What happens is what's happening right now, and right now, and right now, and right now. That's the way radio works. And that's not the way audio works. And uh, for example, there's no space between any of the info, as I said. It's all packed in. There's no silences, there's no pause for thought, but that's the way it needs to be because you need to keep people's attention as they're washing the dishes or they're in the car or, what it, or we're doing whatever it is that they're doing as they're listening to the radio show and tuning in as everyone else is. Radium is dangerous. It's radioactive. And radio should feel radioactive when you're making it. You should always be aware that the red light is on. Red light means emergency. 
there's an emergency, there's airtime to fill, there's a silence to fill with something that's vital, that's going to keep people's attention, that's radio, and you have to do it in an interesting way, and at its purest form, it's live. An audio beginning is altogether different, and I'm going to play one uh, now for you that uh, some colleagues and I tried to do in uh, 2005. There was a show, uh, it was a series, a documentary series called The Wire, The Impact of Electricity on Music. It's a historical documentary about how music changed in the 20th century, an eight-part series. Myself and Chris Brooks, who I'll be speaking about a lot this morning, uh, he's a producer based in Newfoundland, and he was audio luminary at Third Coast in 2008 at this conference. And Joey Taylor is the host of the show. And uh, nobody says what's going on for a full minute at the beginning of the show. And all eight episodes start the same way for the first minute, and then they change. The idea is we wanted to bring people into the right frame of mind to listen to an hour-long documentary about the history of music in the 20th century and how electricity changed it. We couldn't believe we got away with putting a full minute at the top of a show on the air without someone telling us not to do it. But it was a huge success. Um, the series won a Peabody Award, it won the Pre-Italia, and it won a Third Coast Award. So this is from 2005, and this is the opening of one of the episodes. Hey, is this thing plugged in? Oh, man. The Wire. Can you hear anything? Incredible as it may seem, both the observation and the modulator There are many people who will assure you that recording is essentially a dishonest activity. Hi, I'm Joey Taylor, stepping out of the academy across Canada on CBC Radio. Next message. Hi there, it's Joey. Uh, I thought I might catch you, but I guess this recording will have to do. Actually, it kind of makes sense, because that's what we're talking about on The Wire this week. You know, the revolution of recording tape. You realize what a powerful concept it is, like how it changed everything about how we make and listen to music, even when we're not even using tape anymore. Okay, I have to do this. This is a recording. Hi, I'm Joey Taylor, and this is The Wire. For you, what has been the biggest impact of electricity on music? My name is Steve Reich. I'm a composer. My name is Karl-Heinz Stockhausen. My name is Olga Shukai. Dennis Patrick. Gail Young. Bruce Duncan. I'm Les Paul. And when I saw the tape machine, I was stunned. The biggest impact. Yeah. It is the change of the sound. I would say that it's the biggest impact. And it's hard for us these days to recognize how new that was, to have the same sound be heard twice. That means to fix the sound and then making it possible to work on the sound. It is the change of the sound. It's enormous. It's in, it's in pop music. It's in classical music. Uh, it's in everyday life. It's all over the place. The biggest impact on music, according to some of these folks, is the change of the sound. 
And I love that clip. I referred to it already once. Hard for us these days to recognize how new that was to have the same sound be heard twice. And I'm talking about the 1940s and 50s now. You might have heard there was some sound of trains in the background. Just sounded like trains. That was a revolutionary piece of music made by the French composer Pierre Schaeffer with Tape Machine in the 1950s, I think. And that, in the 1950s, was revolutionary to have a train sound be heard twice and doubled up and played over on itself. That was a revolutionary piece of music in the 1950s. And for us today, it's hard for us to recognize how new it still is to have the same radio show be heard twice. I think, in some ways, what we're going through right now in our field is a revolution in the way we make things that's similar to the revolution that music underwent with the advent of the tape machine. And for us, it's been digital media that has been the catalyst for these sweeping changes and, and endless possibilities that we now have. It's an amazing time to be making radio and audio. Now let's think about radio drama. I have to give a tip of the hat to radio drama because people used to sit down and listen to radio drama. They used to make it an, an appointment to sit down to, to listen to drama on the radio. It's the purest form of artifice in radio, but it's become greatly diminished in the past 10 years. Just this year in Canada, we lost our radio drama department because of sweeping governmental cuts to the CBC. Um, we had $115 million cut from the budget, and one of the first things on the chopping block was the radio drama department. Sad to say, but in some ways, I hate to say it, but it's easy to see why they had to make that choice, because people don't flock to radio drama in the same way as they flock to drama on television or or in movies, that form of radio storytelling is, I'm not saying it's obsolete, because I don't think it is, and there's lots of creative stuff that's happening right now, coming out of the US and coming out of Ireland, I can think of some great examples, but it's thought to be obsolete. People think of it as being old-fashioned radio drama, but it is the precursor of what we do, if you're an audio producer, as audio producers. It doesn't deal, we don't deal with fiction, radio drama dealt with fiction. We deal with the real world, but, but we are the legacy of radio drama. We're carrying the radio drama flag in some ways. Kind of like creative nonfiction. That's the way I see audio in, 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 in some ways. We carry that radio drama flag. So here is the opening of one of my favorite, um, give me one second, I'm having trouble working this, but I'm more used to faders and buttons and just, Anyway, so this is the opening of one of my favorite radio dramas as an illustration. Or it's not the opening, it's just a clip. Inscribed in large, friendly letters on the cover. To tell the story of the book, it's best to tell the story of some of the minds behind it. A human from the planet Earth was one of them, though as our story opens, he no more knows his destiny than a tea leaf knows the history of the East India Company. His name is Arthur Dent. He is a six-foot-tall ape descendant, and someone is trying to drive a bypass through his home. Come off it, Mr. Dent. You can't win, you know. Look, there's no point in lying down in the path of progress. I've gone off the idea of progress. It's overrated. But you must realise that you can't lie in front of the bulldozers indefinitely. I'm game. We'll see who rusts first. I'm afraid you're going to have to accept it. This bypass has got to be built, and it is going to be built. Nothing you can say or do... Why has it got to be built? What, what do you mean, why has it got to be built? It, 
It is a bypass. You've got to build bypasses. Didn't anyone consider the alternatives? There aren't any alternatives. Look, you were quite in time to make any suggestions or protests at the appropriate time. Appropriate time? Yes. The first I knew about it was when a workman arrived at the door yesterday. Oh. I asked him if he'd come to clean the windows, and he said he'd come to demolish the house. So that's from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That is the very original iteration of that work. It eventually became a series of books, but that is how The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy got its start, as a radio drama written by Douglas Adams. And it's easy to picture that scene in front of someone's house. There's a bulldozer there and these two guys going toe-to-toe about what's about to happen. This is what we picture in our minds as we listen. But then if we picture how it's made, it's altogether different, right? It's a couple of actors. There's two mics set up in a studio. They're performing their lines. And the special effects are mixed in later to create a world. Once upon a time, we were willing to suspend our disbelief to listen to radio drama in that way. Fewer people are willing to go there now for fiction. But that's what audio is. It's creating a world. And we go there all the time. We give ourselves over to audio producers all the time when we listen to an audio piece. And, and, and that's a convention, too, by the way, that a lot of people use in documentaries. You go into the field and you record something that happens in the field, and then you come back and you write a script, and there's a narrator that introduces the clip, and then the clip comes up. We hear the field sound. It's a very familiar convention from, from an audio documentary that could have been produced any time in the past 15 years is, is what we just heard, or even just a report, really, right? Imagine, you know, it's, uh, let's pretend the narrator said there's been a bylaw amended in Sheffield and such and such a reporter has gone down to see how this affects local residents. You, you could create, if such a thing existed, a news report or, or a short audio report on the same scenario. Some of the same tools are in place. And I've played a couple, I've made a couple of film references sort of with The Princess Bride and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is also made into, the movie, into a movie. And I would like to say, I don't know how you guys feel about this audio producers in the room, I would like to say that when we make audio, let's put it in language that people who aren't audio geeks like us can understand. We're not producers. We are directors. We are, we are directors as much as a film director is. And when I say, when people say, what do you do? Oh, I have to explain. I make audio documentaries. I'm a, I'm a producer. Producer is such a, I mean, it's a term that has so many meanings depending on the context. Let's call ourselves directors. So I, I urge you to start using, just call yourself a director. I mean, the, the problem is, unless we all start doing it, it means nothing, right? <laughs> I've tried it. <laughs> like, oh, I'm a director. Oh, you make movies. No, I make audio movies. Huh? It's, you know, so, but if, if we all start doing it, then maybe people will start to realize what, what an audio documentary is and, and think of it in the same way. Because a lot of people who don't listen to audio documentaries, they, they don't quite get the range of what an audio documentary can be, I've, I've, I've felt over the years. So, directors, unite. Uh, one of the, uh, I was talking about creating a world, and one of the masters at creating a world that draws you in is Chris Brooks. As I mentioned, he was recognized as an audio luminary here at 2008. He's, he lives in Newfoundland, the easternmost province of Canada. It's an island off the coast of uh, mainland Canada. It's the easternmost point in North America. And uh, in 1901, uh, Guglielmo Marconi received the first transatlantic radio signal uh, at the top of some cliffs above the city of St. John's. Chris has a house and a studio in his house at the foot of the very same cliff. 
and that's where he makes his radio shows. At the very origin of radio, that's where Chris Brooks lives and works. He's a cherished colleague, he's a mentor, he's a dear friend, and if I ever am ever able to produce anything even approaching what I'm about to play you, I will be very grateful to the radio and audio gods, because to me this is pure poetry. It creates a world and it pulls you right in. Okay, this is a recording of the Fort Amherst Foghorn. I make a lot of recordings, like this one. This is the sound of fog rolling into the harbor past my house. When I'm recording, it's the sound of the present. I put the tape on a shelf, and when I play it back, days or weeks or years later, of course, it's become the sound of the past. A little spool of memory, measuring the gap between then and now. And I feel like there's something sad about the gap. I don't know why. It's just things changing. Of course, this isn't really the sound of fog. Fog is something you can't hear on the radio. This is a foghorn, a thing that evolved entirely because of fog. So it's kind of like the voice of fog. Okay, how about that? I made this recording of the singer Anita Best last summer. Ready? A navigation song. From Bonavis Cape to the stinking Niles, the course is north full forty miles. When you must steer away northeast, Till Cape Friel, Skull Island, bear nor nor west. Then nor nor west, thirty three miles. Three leagues offshore lies Wadham's Isles, where of a rock you must take care. Two miles south, southeast, from miles it bears. Sometimes songs were used as navigational aids for people who couldn't really read charts and maps. You wanted to know how much water was under your vessel and you wanted to uh, you'd be able to make the right turns to get around the reefs and rocks and stuff, you know. So it's kind of a song map. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in a symbolic kind of way. Yeah. So we used to sing our way around in the world like the Australians have the song lines. Yeah. Mm. It's an it's a ni- interesting idea. To find your way around in the world by song. Mm. Therefore, my friend, I would you advise, since all those rocks in danger lies, that you may never amongst them fall, but keep your luff and weather them all. A friend of mine likes to point out that Newfoundland is the oldest non-Aboriginal culture in the Americas. Before the Plains Indian had the horse, we were here singing the fishing grounds. Like the foghorn with the fog, we evolved entirely because of the fish. And for five centuries, we sang, we danced, we spoke the language of fish. Our culture was their voice. Then, suddenly... The fish were gone. It was 12 years ago, 
The tapes on my shelf sound like this. In the news tonight, net loss. Atlantic ground fish stocks nosedive amid warnings of economic disaster in the maritime fishery. It's a major social and economic catastrophe. There are so many things I like about that, that opening. It's three minutes before we actually know what it's about. It's a 15-minute documentary about the disappearance of fish. We don't hear about that for the first three minutes. That's because it's about so much more at the same time. Um, he breaks the fourth wall twice in those first three minutes. Right off the top, he says, this is a recording I made. He brings you into his process. And then you hear the, the singer doing the mic test before she actually sings. She says, is that all right? Um, that's a, that's a, a technique which I'm going to talk about more in a minute, which I really like. Um, and the juxtaposition of the foghorn to the singer is one of my absolute favorite moments in audio. Absolute favorite. The pacing, the pacing of the storytelling, it, he doesn't tell you what it's about, right? But he attracts you into the thread of what, it, what it's about and the topic and the emotion too. So you know why it matters, why those fish disappeared by the time you find out that's what it's about. And the sounds aren't overdone either. You know, he, she sings for 40 seconds and during that time your mind relaxes instead of having to constantly pay attention to information, information, information. He's allowing you to inhabit the story with your ears. So here's another great opening and this is front of from one of last year's winners here at Third Coast. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krilwich. This is Radio Lab. Today on this program, we are calling it... Lost and Found. That's right. We have stories of getting lost. And, of course, getting found. <laughs> now I think we're going we're gonna to make a little adjustment here. Recalculating. Shift gears. Approaching emotional lift turn. Thank God. I don't know how to turn that off. Oh, give it to me. This next story is a very different kind of lost and found. Sort of a love story. If you can tell us your name. Oh. Here's the guy. My name is Alan Lundgaard. Do you want to... Do you want me to say anything more than that? I don't know. Is this is this for like a credit? No, well, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes often on our show we have to let people introduce themselves. Oh. I don't know. I don't have a title. Okay. All right. So that's Alan. The girl, Emily, we'll meet her a bit later for reasons that will become clear. The story begins on a fall day in Brooklyn. And so the day in question, um, I guess it was the morning of October 8th. They're both living in this one-room loft in Brooklyn. And we woke up and, you know... Both 21. Went about our daily routine and prepared to go. He was in art school. She was taking some time off from art school to work for a local artist. So she would take the bike and I would take the train. What was the morning like? It was a beautiful day. It was, you know... The sun was low in the sky, so there were, you know, long shadows... I strapped on her helmet and adjusted it, took her bike out for her. We kissed each other goodbye and said I love you, and I watched her ride down the street in this early morning, and then, you know, on I went, down into the subway. Six hours later, he's working in the studio doing some sculpture, and he gets a call from a cop. And he just said, Emily Gassio, she had an accident. She's at Bellevue. This is the address. And I said, oh, I mean, do you have any more information? And he just told me that it was bad. I, I was, like, carrying a bunch of stuff, and I just dropped everything and started running. Now, Alan and Emily had only been together nine months, but when it started, says Alan, it was just so immediate. 
the um, night they got together, they both just kind of knew. It was sort of like a weird prophetic kind of thing where I think it was the first day that the schools had a snow day. It was snowed out. It was kind of like this past blizzard, you know, sort of like city shuts down, magical kind of thing. He'd gone out with some friends just as the snow was coming down. And we were trapped at this party. And that's where he bumped into Emily. Pint size. These big, like iridescent eyes. And a few techniques very that kind of draw you in that are so effective. I have trouble describing my voice. It's almost as if first, the story I know you guys are begin audio with the people, but turn. it's like the stereo it almost. Really begins when Truth is, they've known each other for a while, but that night, guy. says Alan, fireworks and all of a sudden. They don't use the right. sound so you had a, right you had a feeling this wasn't just a thing, this was a thing. Right, right, or the thing, the thing, the thing, the thing, the soul thing. Yeah. They say, oh, this is well, Emily, they let you, uh, the listener, they've into always the been boys around Emily. That's Susan Gossio, Emily's mom. Um, she says at first, it's not when Emily told her about Alan, she thought, okay, so right? that's it's another not boy. That's actually Emily part seemed of the story. to have They don't tell you what's boys, coming up. They just let the story unfold. That's the other thing that they do is they just let the story unfold. They don't say this is a story about, which is what you hear on a radio show all the time and, and how things are introduced a lot of the time. Sometimes, sometimes I just wish... It, was a, it were a convention to, to just press play on a piece instead of saying what it's about, if the piece was designed with that in mind. Sometimes a piece needs an introduction. This piece doesn't need an introduction. That's amazing. That's the way it should be. Um, the story should tell itself. And that, that thing that's not information, that thing which is them chit-chatting about how they get introductions for people from people when they're putting radio shows together, that's a reminder to the listener that there's a red light on somewhere. This is audio taking a page from radio. This is audio saying, hey, there's a red light on. There's an emergency happening here. I'm in the field. I'm recording. This is the, t- this is the scariest part of making a radio piece, is when you're in the f- when, an audio piece, is when you're in the field and you're there and you have to gather your tape. That's your red light. Maybe you're not live on the air and maybe you'll have a chance to clean everything up or not, depending on the choices you make and a chance to really thoroughly produce something. But when you're out in the field, that's your red light. It's counterintuitive, but bringing the listener into that space puts them on your side. It gives them an, a window into your world as, as the producer. And it's, it's another way of drawing them in to what's happening, because they're there, they're picturing it, right? They're picturing, okay, these guys are sitting down and they're interviewing this guy instead of it all being clean and polished. And, and they also left, uh, Radiolab is very good at that. They do that a lot. And another thing that they're very good at is they leave in unedited moments of natural, real conversation. Instead of cleaning it to the point where it's sterile, they don't take out all the ums and the ahs. They leave those natural hesitations. And I think uh, that's another important audio technique that harkens back to radio and what makes radio vital. And I mean, as I say, I don't, I don't, there are very few things that are pure radio, a live show, and pure audio, raw tape maybe, let's say, or something that's very, very, very thoroughly produced, depending on which way you want to look at it. A lot of these things have to still make sense to a radio audience and an audio audience. And so having a few atoms of radium in mixed in with the gold means that that vital energy is going to work on the radio, but it's also going to work in audio. So... Speaking of what we tend to cut as audio producers, ums and ahs and that sort of thing, I want to play something else from The Wire. 
what we notice, if we notice it at all, is the kind of soundtrack that's played at a restaurant, for example, where it becomes sort of oral wallpaper. And there's nothing you can do about it. How do we perceive? Music is always there in your environment. It means that there's a, a very, very different relationship to music. It's not so focused. It's, it's maybe not so special in a way. You know, there, there's a term, elevator music. The recording technologies have been able to take music outside of the specific time and place that it's created in. And I think that's been a huge change in our way of thinking about music. Electricity tends to just make everything become everywhere. How do we perceive? Um, um, uh, um, you know, um, I'm wondering, well, what's going on in your ears? Um, you know, um, because... Um, you know, um, how do we perceive? Ambient music. Somehow I think that affects how we, we perceive uh, sounds. Silence is... Muzak's relationship with silence, we're a music company. We're an imaging company. We're an audio branding company. Our company's not about silence. How do we perceive? Unpleasant silences. Um, 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 how do we perceive? Ambient music. Um, 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 how do we perceive? Um, 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 unpleasant silences. The difference between noise and, and music is music has a purpose. And, and noise is something that fills an environment. Um, 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 how do we perceive? So um, that was Chris Brooks at work again. And uh, <laughs> I loved it when, we, when he did that. Um, it makes a point. You know, once upon a time, we'd never have put music in the background. We, we have no idea what that's like now. We're so far beyond that understanding of music. But now it's everywhere. In fact, that music that you heard in the background, that's... A, a very famous piece of music by Eric Satie, the Gymnopédie number two, beautiful piece of music. Um, Eric Satie was the first person to suggest music could go into the background. And we recorded that off the Muzak website. <laughs> so that's actually Muzak taking Eric Satie and turning it into Muzak. Um, so it was kind of the, the, the fitting soundtrack for that, well, part of, part of the soundtrack for that point, which is, What's noise and what's music? Well, it depends on the context. There's a lot of space in that mix, and I like that too because it allows you to draw your own conclusions. It makes room for your mind to go in and figure out what, what, what's going on here and make your own decisions about what's, what's going on here. And also, there's lots of repetition, and I am a big fan of repetition. Um, so Chris did that. We, we work collaboratively. We just FTP sessions back and forth, and audio back and forth from one end of the country to the other. He's in Newfoundland four and a half hours ahead of me. I'm in Vancouver on the shores of the Pacific Ocean. And, and that's how we collaborate. And uh, so when I was working on the end of that hour-long talk, I brought back that mix, slightly altered, saying something else, but harking back to the mix that you'd heard at the beginning. And there's a couple of other points where Eric Satie's music comes up in the doc. It's an hour-long doc. Repetition, 
is, I feel, just a really, really important tool that we should never be afraid to use. Sparingly, you don't want to overuse it, but it's still really, really a critical tool. And it's a musical technique. I feel like, you know, this is where we come from as, as audio producers, not just drama, but music, right? Music uh, is another form of storytelling. It's emotional storytelling. And um, I think as audio producers, it's a tool that we can use. Musical techniques are, techniques are tools that we can use. This is not to say that a straight-ahead doc is not worthwhile. By no means am I saying that. I'm just, I'm just talking about the wider range of possibilities that we have as audio producers. And, and you can always use a musical approach. Music is powerful. There's a scholar in Seattle named Ellen DeSanayaka, a uh, fascinating and brilliant woman, an ethologist, and she's done a lot of research into the origins of music. And I interviewed her for another series uh, that we did called The Nerve, Music and the Human Experience. And in this clip, she explains how we are hardwired to uh, respond to musical techniques. And there's a recording uh, that was part of a scientific experiment with mothers and their infants carried out in Scotland in the 1970s, which she is addressing. The mother is talking to the baby, and of course the baby does not understand the words. The baby understands the, the prosody, the emotional part of the speech. Megan would do it with this hand. This little piggy went to market. And that is very unusual. Um, the mothers speak in a high-pitched, higher-pitched voice than they use with anyone else. They have exaggerated contours. Should we do it again, Meg? They use a lot of repetition in what they say. Oh, Megan. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Poor wee baby. Poor wee baby. Sick. They have themes and variations. Well, we're going to play. We're going to play. We'll play clapahandis. Really? And at the same time that they're using the voice, they're also concomitantly using facial expressions and head movements and touching. So you have a multimedia uh, performance by the mother that the, the infant is very engaged by and is in fact pre-programmed or all, almost born, one could say, to respond to. They use a lot of repetition. They have themes and variations, exaggerated contours. Because if you think about it, um, there's no reason to talk like that to a baby. Uh, we do so because babies give us all the signals that show that they're liking it a lot. It's as if the baby is teaching us to make this kind of altered <laughs> speech and these funny faces. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe we, you just kind of figure out by trial and error, Sydney, gentle please, gentle with Percy that you don't get their attention at that young an age unless you are speaking in a really animated tone. That was a mother speaking to her infant, well, th that we interviewed at the end as well. Uh, speaking with Ellen blew my mind, and now I have a young daughter, a 19-month-old daughter, and 
I've, I just, it is amazing to me how hardwired we are to respond to music and musical techniques like repetition and theme and variation. It's no wonder to me that music affects everybody and music exists in all cultures because it's part of our biology. It's really part of our biology. And I, I believe that all of those techniques are applicable to a great audio production and as well to great live radio because live radio is a performance and so you can use repetition and themes and variations and exaggerated contours they're all musical techniques that we can use in both radio and audio. The music there uh, that you heard was the Tempest Sonata, the third movement of the Tempest Sonata by Ludwig van Beethoven, recorded by Glenn Gould, um, who, as you may know, a uh, very, very, very famous pianist, uh, lived from 1932 to 1982. Um, he intentionally stopped performing in front of live audiences so he could concentrate on making the perfect recording. He said, whereas most people will tell you that recording is a dishonest activity, for him at the time, especially in classical music, for him, it was a tool to be able to create the perfect expression of the music and to take different sections of different takes of the same Goldberg variation or the same Beethoven sonata and put them together to create the perfect expression of what he wanted the music to sound like. Kind of like the difference between audio a radio approach and an audio approach. And this is interesting, especially because Glenn Gould was one of the first audio documentary producers. He was a pioneer in the field, and in just a minute I'll play you a bit of something that Glenn Gould produced, uh, which I'll th I think you'll find very interesting. But first I want to play you this, and um, this is uh, composer Steve Reich responding to a question. What, in fact, do you think has been the, the biggest effect of the tape recorder on, on music? Well, <laughs> yeah. you know, large question. How, how deep is the ocean? How wide is the sky? Uh, well, it's been enormous. I mean, uh, Sgt. Pepper, uh, Pink Floyd. Uh, recorded music basically has become the dominant form of music in the world. I, heard, I was the first generation to grow up listening more to recordings than to, con to live performances. I went to concerts, sure, but I, you know, if you measured the number of hours that I heard music on a record as opposed to the amount of hours that I heard music in a nightclub or in a concert hall, the records would win hands down. Recorded music is the, has become the, the, the dominant form of, of, of listening to music pretty much worldwide oh, for the last 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. So uh, that aspect of it uh, is, is overwhelming. As a side effect, if you like, people began to discover, hey, the, the, you can do things with this tape recorder besides just record. You know, you can play it backwards, you can slow it down, you can speed it up. You know, you can play it backwards, you can slow it down. You know, you can play it backwards, you can slow it down, you can speed it up. You know, you can play it backwards, you can slow it down. You know, you can play it backwards, you can slow it down, you can speed it up. You know, you can play it backwards. That's uh, also from The Wire. Um, what Reich is talking about could apply to audio and radio today. How we listen to it has totally changed. Like, 
let's have a quick show of hands here. How many people in the room here have actually spliced tape for professional purposes, not out of curiosity? Okay. Now, how many people in the room would say that they listen to podcasts more than they listen to radio? So if Steve Reich was the first generation of people who listened to recorded music more than went to concerts, I think that the current generation is probably the first generation that's going to have, end up having listened to more podcasts than radio. That's a huge change. And instead of tape, it's digital technology and the internet that's, that's changed the game. And the democratization of audio production... Um, and we all know this. This is obvious. This is something that we all take for granted. But uh, that that thing that's ex that's happened in the past few years has created the same conditions that was going on in the uh, in the 1960s. It's not that long ago, really, that you spliced tape. Those of you that did, I have never. Um, I have never. I started just just at the tail end. So, um, but but it's not that long ago. And does anybody know the sort of the the the, the date of the word podcast, when it dates from the year, roughly guess, 2004, eight years ago, not that long ago. Um, you probably recognize the Beatles tune, I'm Only Sleeping. It's one of the first examples of a guitar recording being played backwards in the solo, which we didn't hear, which comes after that. Um, this is a good chance for me to reiterate that I don't think of radio uh, and audio or either one of them to be superior to the other. I just think of them as merely different, just like the Beatles were two completely different bands before they started messing around with tape and after they started messing around with tape. You know, before they started messing around with tape, they were uh, a great band, raw energy. And then after, it was focused energy in the studio. And again, echoing the difference between radio and audio. I promised you Glenn Gould. Um, he produced something called the Solitudes Trilogy. It was one of the earliest forms, I guess the earliest radio... Uh, not really the earliest, but it was it was pretty early, late 60s. And um, the most famous one from the Solitudes trilogy is a documentary called The Idea of North. It's painstakingly put together. It was legendarily painstakingly put together by Glenn Gould, splicing tape. As uh, You won't be able to tell from this clip, I don't think, but he has taken conversations and taken bits of conversations. And, and in order to focus our attention on certain things, he... he you can tell that he went through a lot of painstaking splicing. And so you'd think it'd have all the hallmarks of audio, but to me it's a radio show because audio did not really exist as a medium then. We had different ears then. This was meant to be heard on the radio. Glenn Gould, unless you were Glenn Gould, who probably did listen to it over and over and over again, wasn't expecting people to hear this over and over and over again or to have the ears that we do today. starts really quietly. I was fascinated by the country as such. I flew north from Churchill to Coral Harbor on Southampton Island at the end of September. Snow had begun to fall and the country was partially covered by it. Some of the lakes were frozen around the edges, but towards the center of the lake you could still see the clear, clear water. And flying over this country, you could look down and see various shades of green in the water, and you could see the bottom of the lakes, and it was a most fascinating experience. I remember I was up in the cockpit with a pilot, and I was forever looking out, left and right, and I could see ice flows over the Hudson's Bay, and I was always looking for a polar bear or some seals that I could spot, but unfortunately there were none. 
And as we flew along the east coast of Hudson's Bay, this flat, flat I don't go. Let me say this again. I don't go for this northmanship bit at all. Because it just uh, seemed endless. I don't. Uh, we seemed to be going into nowhere. Not those people who do claim that and they the further north we went, farther north and so on. But I see it as a as a kind of a game. This uh, northmanship bit, with people snow. saying, "Well, you know, were right. you ever up at the North Pole? You know, and how I did a." Uh, no, a dog sled trip of 22 days and the other fellow said, well, I did one of 30 days. No, it's for another very childish. Years. Perhaps they, she didn't, the they, they, they would see themselves as more sure, the north uh, skeptical. My life. I can't uh, conceive of anyone being in close touch with the north, whether he lived there all the time or simply traveled it month after month, year after year. I can't conceive of such a person being really untouched by the north for the rest of his life. When I left in 19... The idea of North by Glenn Gould, I will openly admit that I have never been able to get through the whole thing. I actually probably haven't been able to get through the first 10 minutes, to be totally honest with you. Um, it's a hard thing to listen to. We're not used to listening, we're not used to hearing things like that. Um, and I don't think it was meant to be listened to in that way, attentively, to sit down and listen to it unless you were a bit of an eccentric like Glenn Gould was. This was made in the age of radio, and it's the kind of thing that you can imagine maybe wading into and coming out of. Maybe it's on in the background as you're doing your household chores. Different way of listening back then. Um, maybe some folks listened to it uh, attentively around their fireplace or something, but they would have been listening with different ears that had much greater patience than we do today, for example. Uh, and maybe they too would have found it weird. I don't know. To me, it is, I just, I have had a really hard time over the years listening to the idea of North. And, and it's also clearly a composition in the style of J.S. Bach. He was working, uh, you know, with different voices and trying to make them into different, uh, trying to use counterpoint techniques that he liked to play on the piano, J.S. Bach, master of counterpoint. Um, and uh, I, I wouldn't listen to this on headphones the way I would listen to a, a fugue by J.S. Bach. I just, it doesn't work the same way to me. I think that's because it's of its time. Uh, it's not a criticism. It's, it's, it's what worked back then as an experimental kind of technique to push the medium forward. I was speaking about our way of listening. I uh, love this next clip, but it is going to be a challenge. Chris Brooks did, he, I worked with him on it, he invited me to work with him on it, which is real thrill for me. It's a documentary that he did a couple of years ago called Hark, The Acoustic World of Elizabethan England. And if our way of listening has changed a lot in the past 20 years, it sure has changed a lot in the past 400 years as we learned, as we explored this topic. And we interviewed scholars, and Chris uh, took a trip to England, and he made field recordings on farms and on castles and in the streets of London. And we tried to try and imagine, how did people listen in 1612? How did they listen? And at a certain point, he sent over this section. And I said, Chris, really? You want to you wanna just leave this section the way it is? And he's like, yeah, I think this is the way I want it to be. It's like, are you sure that you want it to be this way? <laughs> I'll just play it for you and then we'll talk about it. I'm Di Hadley, Diana Hadley. I've lived at Middle Watchbury Farm all my life and the village, Barford, Warwick, 
you know, obviously an agricultural community since, certainly in Elizabethan times and before. He's a bit slow. He can't, he can't see very well because his ears are over his eyes and he can't hear very well because his ears are over his ear holes. He's a Gloucester old spot. I mean, they're a well-known old breed. Right, Mrs P, do you want your tea? Tea time. So you can see why I wondered why he wanted to leave it. But I, I learned some things from that. Um, people 400 years ago couldn't shut things off, was one of the things that I learned from that. Also, people 400 years ago didn't have really loud sounds in their lives um, that masked other sounds. When they heard a sound like that, that was probably the event of the day, orally speaking. Uh, we live in a much changed sound world, especially if we live in urban centers. Um, that's raw audio, and by the way, I still call it tape, and I probably will always call it tape. Um, but that's raw audio. I think that's the rawest you can get. And his choice to leave it untouched for two and a half minutes or whatever it is. That's another production choice that we make as audio producers that sometimes we use to great effect. I am positive there are many people who turned off their radios when the pigs continued to go on or they switched station, but I bet you there are a few people who found it really interesting. Um, anyway, that's one of my favorite clips to play for people because it always goes on way longer than I think it does is going to, and I've heard it about 50 times. Um, 
At the opposite end of the radio spectrum is something that's densely mixed and has lots and lots of elements. I want to talk about processing for a short minute. I think we're, it goes without saying we're beyond the days where reverb is unusual in radio, uh, where EQ and delay and all the other delay and all the other effects are unusual. Uh, that means we're past the days where they're just a novelty. And that means that while we still have to use them judiciously, we should all feel free to use these tools as much as we like in every piece if it is appropriate. And I won't play anything for you that has a lot of, uh, t uh, of FX in it because we heard something great this morning. Um, one of the short docs I thought the Oklahoma short doc used FX really brilliantly. The way the explosion came in before the guy's word was cut off was fantastic. The reverb that was used, if you're going to use reverb, use it, use it properly and use it well. That was some... That was a pretty amazing way to use reverb. And then the way that it, uh, it, it sort of, then, then she landed us on a sort of reflective plane where we could reflect about what had happened just with the sound design. It was just brilliant. So I don't need to play anything to illustrate that because she did it so well. I've got one more clip for you. Um, Silence, by the way, is also a really great tool. And the last short talk we heard, the bus one, man, did he use those three seconds of silence to great effect. That was just Fantastic. Got me right in the gut um, and, and, and got me thinking in the right headspace to make the point that he made. So silence is another tool that, that we can use. Um, now remember that wiretap piece that we heard at the beginning, the juggling piece? I want to play the rest of it for you now as a final selection here. Uh, we were talking about whether it was recorded live or in studio or produced. The first section maybe sounded like it could have been recorded spontaneously in studio. This one will give away that it's produced. I gave Jonathan Goldstein a call the other day to ask him, and he, I quote, very, very produced <laughs> is, is how the piece was put together. Um, even, but you know, and I've always thought it had to be carefully produced, but we allow ourselves to believe that it's happening in real time, which is part of the artifice, and it's so, so, so very well done. It is sheer genius. Here is the end of that clip. This is an apple. It's real. I can smell it. I can taste it. Everybody knows that's, that's a real apple. Now, if I take a couple of tennis balls mm -hmm. with this apple, mm -hmm. all of a sudden I have three kind of balls. And now I'm juggling them. See? Juggling on the radio. Again, a great idea. And then, what I'm going to do is simply... And I'm continuing to juggle, and now I have a mouthful of a real apple. Right, you've probably spent like, you know, hours, like maybe even days learning how to do this stuff, but I, I'm, I've just taken well, to it. Well, you know, I, I, and I don't... Okay, but, Triple time. Yes, but that's drumming. That's no, not, it's juggling. It's like I'm playing to a room full of blindfolded. Yeah, but, but look, you're cheating. That's not real. Hup. No, that's not Hup. real. That's not real. Hup. Now watch this, watch no. this. Over my head. Under my back? No, you're lying. My legs. You're lying. No, this is real juggling. That's real juggling. Do you hear the difference? That's real juggling. What you're doing is, is fraudulent. What you're doing is not real. It's real enough. It's real for the radio. If, if I could just have uh, one, of the, uh, one of the technicians over here just toss me uh, a machete. Oh, there we go. Oh, yeah. And now if you could just throw me uh, a couple of those cats. In, into the uh, into the mix. I got some cats going. There we are. You see, that's the, you see, pretty good. Uh, can you do cats? And now you throw in a couple yipping dogs, right? And, that, and now for my grand finale, I throw into the mix a chainsaw. At least say hop. Oh, right, right, right. Hop, hop, 
Oh, here we go. Hup. Okay, well that's something. Yeah, hop, hop. Whoa, oh, I almost dropped that one. So first of all, masterful performance by Jonathan Goldstein. Um, but I also I love how he says one of the technicians as, as though we had access to multiple technicians in our line of work, right? That's the giveaway. That's the dead giveaway that this is a produced piece. Um, so uh, last final word here. I think you know gold. If you take audio as gold and and radio as radium, um, think of it as a chemical formula. Aura, the name of this session. Sometimes you'll have more AU, and sometimes you'll have more RA, and it's a balance. And you put the AU and RA together to make the word aura, and I like that because it has connotations of magic. It's magic, it's artifice, it's something very special. Never forget that someone is listening, whether it's on headphones or it's in the moment, and we have a magic connection to that person, aura. Thank you for your ears. I threw these tips together, um, uh, and I can also put the other slide up as well if you want to look at those crossfaders again. Um, I, th I think we have one minute, but I'm not sure if we have more than that for questions. Is anyone from the conference able to tell me that? Did you mind coming up to the mic and, and, and put, and just because so th they're recording the session or taking the... Hello. Yes. Okay. So, uh, just the name of the piece uh, with the juggling dogs and cats. Oh, it's, it's the episode is called Life Lessons, and it's from the program Wiretap. Any other questions? Just another. What was the name of the piece with the Glenn Gould in it? With the Glenn Gould piano performance in it? Uh, that was uh, from a series called The Nerve, and that was from episode two, which was called In the Key of DNA. It was about music and evolution. Um, you may have said this earlier because I walked in just a few minutes late, um, but do you trust the listeners to know the difference between raw and produced? You know, that the raw pigs scene. Mm -hmm. You know, when it's smack next to something that was really well, highly produced, my ear instantly thought it was, it was produced. It was mixed together. I didn't think it was real. Mm. Um, so, and I have a problem, I have... In Radio Ambulante, which is the show that I produce, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I'm dealing with listeners that have never heard, really don't, some have never heard produced pieces. So mm. they, I wonder how you tip off your listener when you're like, okay, this was real. This was recorded in the situation. This sound effects. <laughs> how, do you, how do you make that balance? That's so interesting. Um, I, I think that, I think that there are so many different kinds of listeners that some listeners are just not going to have that reaction and there's nothing that you can do perhaps for some of the listeners, particularly people who are, are you know, used to a certain kind of radio listening and that's what they listen to. I was going to play you a very, very densely mixed piece, but just ran out of time, that Chris and I did for, um, for Parks Canada, for the National Parks System of Canada, for Gross Morn. We did a documentary on Gross Morn National Park. It's an amazing national park on the west coast of Newfoundland that's very important to the history of the theory of plate tectonics. It's kind of like the Galapagos of geology. The Galapagos is important for the theory of evolution. Gross Morn is important for the theory of plate tectonics. And our assignment was to make a documentary about how plate tectonics works. 
Um, anyway, so one of the scenes we had was a, a big, long outdoor scene uh, on, a, on, a, on the shoreline by some cliffs that are very important geologically. They represent the boundary between the Ordovician and the Cambrian period, in case you care about that kind of thing. And um, it was very windy, and you could hear the waves, and it was most definitely a scene outside. And then we wanted to get them to think about we wanted to get listeners to be able to think about those kinds of timescales, 500 million years, 1 billion years, because it's, it's, it's mind-blowing, that kind of a timescale. So then we had this super densely produced section with tons of reverb. There was a poet reading his poem. There was all kinds of sound design. It, it was one of the most densely produced sections of, of audio I've ever, ever produced. And if, hearing it on its own, it sounds kind of out of context. It kind of sounds like, why would you put so many elements in one, in one place? But in the flow of the piece, then we go back to the cliffside. It, it, I think that was one way that we felt like, okay, this is outdoor space and this is imagination space. I don't know if that answers your question. Partially, perhaps. It's a tough question, and, and I think about that a lot, a lot as well. Any other questions? Um, I had a question about the, sorry, the one with the pigs at the beginning. Um, I, I, I was really impressed because even, I, I mean, I have a high tolerance for stuff, and I was like, I, I would have I flipped it. But yeah, I, I would have too. Yeah. I just wonder, um, either, I mean, I don't know how much role you had in, in that piece in particular, but like for, for you or just the people you work with or what you think about radio or audio should do, um, if that is on radio broadcast or even if someone's getting this as a podcast and like 50% of the people turn it off right there, do you care? That's a great question. And I think, I can't speak for Chris, but I think he would simultaneously care and not care in a way. Like he would obviously miss the people that left. He would, he would, he wouldn't like that, but and I, you know, I'll speak for myself, you know, I know you don't want people to turn off. But on the other hand, for those people that stick around, they're in the pool with you. And this is something that Chris says all the time. What he, he, he frames this so well. He says, what you want to do at the beginning of a piece is you want to nudge listeners into, the, invite them into the pool with you so that they stay with you and, and, and that they allow themselves to be surrounded by the sound world that you're creating. And so... I think by, in some ways, being deliberately, deliberately provocative by putting on such a long clip of pigs, um, he's saying to his listeners, okay, you trusted me to come this far. Trust me some more and see where I take you. Um, and, 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 and he's willing to sacrifice the listeners that are not willing to stay. <laughs> um, for, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's a, there's a question over here. And while it might gets passed over, I'll just say that's another thing that we, we learned making that documentary that's just so fascinating, right? Sound surrounds us. We see things and we think of ourselves as looking at that clock over there. Uh, sound comes to us and there's nothing we can do about it. And so that is very, very, very powerful. When we interact with sound, it's something that surrounds us. Um, more, more of a, more than a question. It's a comment, maybe to what Sam was asking, and you were saying. I think uh, Chris Brooks. Uh, I, I was thinking of Stravinsky when he wrote the Rite of Spring. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. He didn't really care much about the what the audience would say the first time they heard the piece, right? Right. And I think Chris Brooks is uh, like a, is an artist. Yes. Uh, pushing the, pushing the medium, and then uh, the audience can have time to listen to it again and maybe get used to it. 
because you were saying, you know, we can listen to it again. Just I like you know, that. As I like thought, that as a thought. Yeah, no, I like that. I think that's that's a good way of putting it. Thank you. And <coughs> we just wait for the, the mic's going to come up to you in just one second. I was listening to it too, and I loved it. I thought it was you know beautiful and symphonic, and obviously he felt it was the right length. But where would you have cut it? Would you would you have cut it down? You know, because he could have done that seamlessly. He could have made it a minute. He could have. He could have. Um, I probably would have done that. My instinct would have been to take, you know, the beginning and take the end and make a cut in the middle. And uh, uh, that's that's. I may have said that at some point to him. I can't recall. <laughs> Shouldn't we cut this down? <laughs> um, so, but that's what I would have. Done. I don't know how long because I think it's like music with audio. It's a gut feeling, and I can't tell you how many times I'm just relying on my gut when I work on my things. It's just. A gut, because I and I think it's because it's an emotional response too. You have an emotional response to the material you're working with, just like a musician has an emotional connection to the to the music that that musician is playing. So, so I can't answer the question specifically, but I can say that I, w I probably would have cut it down. And I'll just add something else that I remembered about the pigs, which is my ears feel so clean at the end of that. Like suddenly that farm, I'm there. Like, I can hear everything on that farm after listening to those pigs for two minutes or a minute and 45. I can't remember exactly how long it is, right? Just every last detail of that recording for the 20 seconds after. It's one of, it's one of the most visceral experiences I've ever had, hearing though, not the pigs. Obviously, that's visceral, too. But those 20 seconds after um, are totally changed by what comes before. And I think it's also important that you hear the pig while she's talking. Yes. It, yeah. <laughs> So, um, do we, how much time do we have? Do we have time for more? Just one more, or okay? So we're gonna we're gonna. Sorry. Um, thanks again for your ears.